and welcome to another week of the extras. Yes, Lachlan still here, still waiting for a baby to come. Joined this week by Peter. That's right, anxiously waiting for Lachlan's phone to ring. <laughs> we'll see if we get cut off halfway through. Uh, Peter, thanks for joining us this week. We're continuing our journey in the book of Hebrews. I've been thoroughly enjoying that both on Sundays in growth group. Uh, it's just a wonderful, rich line of argument in this book that helps us to see and appreciate and delight in Christ. Uh, we had a great fun morning on Sunday morning as well. Where were we in Hebrews? Where were we up to at this stage? Yeah, so in Hebrews, we're up to chapter 8 at this point. So we've leapt slightly forward in our Sunday um passages that we're dealing with. Uh, we spend a little time in growth groups in Hebrews chapter 7, thinking about Melchizedek uh, as a way into talking about Jesus as a priest and what it's like for Jesus to be a priest. Now in chapter 8, we move on to uh, talking about the fact that uh, with, along with Jesus' new priesthood comes a new covenant, a new way of people and God relating to one another. Great. Yeah, it's uh, the argument does get a bit technical and dense at this stage of Hebrews. I mean, it might have felt that all the way through, but I think we particularly move into that density mm. uh, as we look at Jesus' priesthood. Uh, and we'll jump in at chapter 7. We've got a few questions on chapter 7, a few questions on chapter 8. Uh, the first question, just beautifully put, I think, who on earth is Melchizedek? Yeah, <laughs> good question. Thanks for asking. Yeah, um, it's, it's right to ask because Melchizedek is not a major figure in the Bible. Um, he's talked about here as if he's a massive deal, mm. but, you know, blinking you're missing in the mm. Old Testament, right? So he pops up in Genesis chapter 14. Um, he's a figure. He interacts with Abraham, who's better known to us. Um, he's called a priest of God Most High, so he's a priest. Um, but then that's kind of it. He's not mentioned again mm. until Psalm 110, verse 4, which is cited a few times in mm. here. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh that verse, you are a priest forever, the order of Melchizedek, comes in that Psalm 110, and Jesus actually applies that psalm mm. to himself, mm. um, the bit where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so our author in Hebrews is kind of following Jesus' lead, saying, okay, well, if Psalm 110 is a psalm about Jesus, then how do we uh, unpack, what does it mean that uh, Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If mm. verse 1 applies to Jesus, how does verse 4 apply to Jesus? So Melchizedek uh, just popped up in the Old Testament. Uh, I think we had this question a couple of weeks ago. Was that Jesus back then, just making a little surprise appearance and then going to come back later on in history? Nah, Jesus is Jesus, but Melchizedek is like a little signpost pointing to Jesus. Yeah. I wish we did know more about him. I, I resonate with the question you kind of wonder what else happened in his life apart from this one interaction with Abraham. Mm. But I feel like once we have what we do have in the Old Testament, in Genesis and the Psalms, the argument of Hebrews makes sense. And that's a really important thing. And, you know, God's given us what we need to know about Melchizedek. Nothing and, more. And no more. Yeah. Nothing more. Um, someone else has asked, so if Jesus is this priest like Melchizedek, does that impact how we should think of ourselves as priests? Are we also priests in the order of Melchizedek or are we in some other order? Does it matter what order we're in? Should we be Franciscans or I don't know, Great. other kinds of yeah. priests? Yeah. Great question, I think. Um, I would say that, you know, Christians were definitely not Levitical priests, mm. right? I mean, well, you know, perhaps some 
Jewish folk uh, from the tribe of Levi or something like that. Um, but, we, you know, us Gentile believers, we're not Levitical priests, certainly. Uh, we're not Melchizedekian priests either. I think there's only one of those. Mm. It's only Jesus. Um, so, you know, we're not actually priests uh, ourselves, like in kind of virtue of our own um, selves uh, at all. We're priests in the sense that we are partakers of Jesus' priestly activity. Mm. Right, so Jesus is the priest in the order of Melchizedek, mm. and we're priests in the sense that we can be a part of the access that He wins as our priest to mm. God, uh, and we can testify to His priestly work. So we're priests in a kind of a derivative sense. We're not mm. ourselves priests in this order or that. We are priests by virtue of belonging to and participating in Jesus, who is the priest. Okay, so don't worry too much about what order of priest you are. Uh, Someone else on this same thread of chapter 7, Jesus as a high priest is holy, innocent, undefiled, a great list of things in 7 verse 26. Uh, Someone's wondering, is that something that comes from Jesus' divine nature or from his human nature or from both? Again, a question that's recurred throughout Hebrews as we get to know Jesus as God and man. Uh, What are these characteristics of his priesthood? Where do they derive from? Yeah, um, thanks for the question. It's a good one. Um, and we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago about the kind of history of reflection. Um, mm. The scripture is clear that Jesus is fully God. The scripture is clear that Jesus is fully a human being. And there are Christians through the centuries have put lots and lots of mental energy into trying to think through how to understand that. And uh, one potential option is to think that, you know, Jesus kind of does some of his things as a human and some of his things as God. Um, But this is uh, not actually the right way to think about Jesus, Mm. as if he's kind of a a Siamese twin or something, you know, made out of two bits glued together and one (laughs) bit does this bit and one bit does, Mm. you know, one kind of cooks the eggs while the other is, I don't know, making the toast. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not like that. Um, So the technical term that the theologians use is the hypostatic union. Mm. All right. And what they mean by that um, is that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes a human nature to himself. And so the divine nature and the human nature are united in the one person. Hypostasis is person, so a union in one person, uh, the hypostatic union, right? And so whatever this person does, the second person of the Trinity, uh, whatever that person does, does as human and divine, Mm. both Mm. together. Uh, And so... Whatever Jesus does as this person, um, Mm. his work as a priest, being holy, innocent, Mm. undefiled, uh, he does these things as God incarnate, Mm. as the divine man. So uh, not half of him doing half and the other half doing the other half, but all as a whole, Jesus, the one Jesus, the united person uh, doing this united work. Mm. That's helpful. And there's so much we could spend talking about that It's a great wonder of who Jesus is, uh, Mm. the miracle of incarnation, the miracle of Christ as two natures in one person. So we'll have to move on from there for now, but keep thinking about these things. It's a a wonderful thing to think into. Let's move on into chapter 8 because that's where we were on Sunday. We've got a whole bunch of questions pressing into Hebrews 8 and the new covenant. Uh, We'll start with this one. How does Hebrews 8 match up with what Jesus says in Matthew 5? So Matthew 5 verse 17 Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
But in Hebrews 8, you know, Jesus, or the book there is talking about Jesus starting a new covenant that's founded on better promises, making the old covenant obsolete. How do we hold those things together? Is God going back on his word? Is he finding a loophole? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a quite a brilliant question and very astute um, because it, it's get gets really to the heart of some of the um, you know, some of the kind of big uh, theological questions uh, in the New Testament. Um, what is the relationship between old and new? Mm. Does the new kind of elbow the old out of the way? There was plan A, scrap that, mm. didn't work, mm. let's try plan B mm. and forget that there ever was a plan A. Um, mm. As our questioner points out, that would be God going back on his word. That would mm. be God looking for a loophole, you know, God being unfaithful, uh, having started one way and then kind of backtracking and trying again. Um, and that's not how the scriptures teach us to think about God. Uh, God is faithful. And so we're, we're, as we take Jesus at his word. What Jesus does is not... Uh, abolishing something that came before, not kind of drawing a line through it and pretending, oh, well, that never happened. Let's sort of mm. start again on a, mm. on a different footing. What Jesus does is a fulfillment of what mm. has gone before. Um, and I think that we actually find a similar perspective in Hebrews 8. Mm. Um, to my mind, actually, you know, that word obsolete, that really does imply sort of, well, that's we're done with that. We're not going back to it. Um, in my mind, that's a little bit actually of an unfortunate translation yeah, okay. of that word. Um, the, the word is something literally like has been made old. Right? Mm. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one old. Mm. Um, which is kind of literally true when you think about it. There's just the covenant until there's another covenant. And yeah. then that first one, now there's a new one. The first one becomes what? Old. Old. Yep. Yeah. So by a new one popping up, the first one automatically gets made mm. old. Mm. Um, now old that can mean um, obsolete. So you know now that I've got this new piece of technology, I have no further call for the mm. old one. Mm. Um, it can mean that, uh, but I think there's pretty strong clues here that that's not what it means. Not least because of the faithfulness of God, uh, and more broadly, uh, because really. The old matters so much mm. in Hebrews. Uh, you know, uh, the, the our author goes out of his way um, to point out that God uh, made a promise to Abraham and then kind of um, doubled down on it. You know, he didn't. He, it's two things in which it's impossible for God to lie. He made a promise and then he confirmed it with an oath. He didn't need mm. to. But he sort of doubled down. Uh, so it points out that this promise is something that God is certainly going to keep. It's not going to go back on and mm. so we can't think of the new as an undoing of the old or an overwriting of the old or a supplanting or a superseding of the old in that sense it's a, a building on a fulfillment of the old okay i just want to ask a question into that Peter. that's not one here um does that mean that someone can still approach god via the old covenant no okay so it's, it has become old in a sense that you, you won't use it in the same way anymore mm. as it once might have been used. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. And so the covenant as kind of setting the terms on which God and people related, mm. uh, that 
covenant has become old and there is mm. a new covenant and it's actually not appropriate to return to the old if the new has come. So God has set uh, new terms for the relationship between himself and people and that looks like approaching him on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Mm. So in the old covenant, it's appropriate to approach God by the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrifices prescribed in the law. Uh, but that, as Hebrews wants to point out, that's no longer appropriate in light of a new covenant coming about. Mm. But that new covenant, the author of Hebrews tells us, is actually what was being pointed to all along. Everything old yeah. was existed in anticipation of the new that would come. And if what was anticipated is now present, well, why would you go back to kind of the, the preliminary and the, uh, the, 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 the prophetic when the reality, the substance, mm. it has arrived? Mm. Mm. Yeah, helpful. Well, we'll come back in a second to talk about the promises that this new covenant is based on. But I think we're starting to hit on a, another question that was here. Why didn't God just start with the new covenant then? Like, was the old covenant a test run? Was it? How do we think about that? Why not just jump in straight away with Jesus? Get it all right. Well, I think as always, when the question is, why didn't God do what God didn't do? <laughs> uh, I think the question is, ask him. Yep, um, fair. Uh, however, however, um, you know, we, we get some a sense in, uh, in, in the scriptures that, um, you know, we're, we're told that, um, that Jesus appears like in the fullness of time, mm. when the time was right. Mm. The, there's actually something about uh, the moment that, Jesus appears in God's saving plan. Like that's the that's the right time, and um, a time before that presumably would not have been yeah. the right time. The time wouldn't have been uh, fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the time wouldn't be wouldn't have become complete. And, and so God has a plan, and actually all the bits of that plan matter. Jesus is at the center of that plan, mm. but Jesus is uh, in some sense not the totality of that plan. Mm. Um, there are other bits also that matter. Uh, and to think of um, the first covenant as a sort of a test run, uh, like we said, like a plan A that doesn't mm, quite mm. work out, so we scrap it. That's not quite right, uh, because as we've pointed out, you know, God makes these promises to Abraham, and the New Testament is very, very clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. Mm. So when Acts, in Acts, when the apostles get out there and they start preaching about Jesus, they say, "Hey, guess what? God kept His promises because He sent Jesus. Yeah. You know, Jesus yeah. is the seed, right?" And so. Um, those promises are in the old are actually what's kept mm. in the mm. new. So they're not a test run. They're actually the, the necessary preliminaries. Um, you know, Paul talks about that as the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. Mm. And so those promises are foundational. And uh, Hebrews also makes it clear that we're dealing with the same God. Mm. You know, God doesn't change. They all change. They get rolled up like a like a garment, you know, rolled up and chucked mm. in the wash. No, God stays the same forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, uh, what God said to our ancestors in the past is not a different thing than what He's spoken to us in these last days by the Son. And so, uh, again and again, Hebrews wants to show us that everything God was doing with His old covenant people, the Israelites was pointing forward mm. to Jesus. And in fact, if we want to understand Jesus and all the goodness of what he's done, you know how we do it? We look back to the old yeah, covenant. Yeah. 
We learn what were the priests like? Well, that tells us about what Jesus is like. What happened on the Day of Atonement? Well, that tells us about what happened on the cross. So if all that first stuff was just a test run, didn't quite work, we need to scrap it, uh, it really wouldn't help us then with this kind of uh, understanding and probing the depths of what God has done in Christ, uh, which is how uh, our author leans on and draws on that stuff. He thinks mm. that all of that stuff is is the palette uh, from which to paint his beautiful picture of Jesus mm. and the work that he does. Mm. Uh, feel free to correct me on this, Peter. Sometimes I think of it kind of like the object lesson that helps us grasp the abstract concept. So sometimes when you're trying to teach abstract concepts to people, you might get something very concrete. You know, you're teaching addition three plus two, so you get three things and you get two things and you combine them. Oh, now we can see the abstract in a concrete way. Mm. Uh, so sometimes I think the old covenant is kind of like that object lesson shows us in a physical and concrete way the truths that are a bit abstract, really, when it comes to Jesus around forgiveness and uh, the people of God and lots of things there. Is that better or not better yeah. than, say, a test run kind of? Yeah, I think that I think that is helpful. Um, as I think as long as we remember that um, Jesus Christ is in no sense abstract. Right? Yeah, Jesus sure. is a person. Yep. He yep. couldn't be any more concrete. True. He's a True. he's a man yep. um, with you know um, well, eyebrows and kneecaps, as my, my old <laughs> pastor used to say. Yeah, yeah. So um, it can't it can't get any more concrete and sure. specific than Jesus. That's but I think it's a helpful way to think about it. Mm. Now we're starting to answer one of the other questions that did come up here. Like I said about promises. The author of Hebrews talks about better promises, but I think you've been saying they're the same promises all the way through. And that's what someone's asked. Why, why are they better? Isn't this still the same promise that was there for Abraham? Has the, have the promises changed? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And uh, it is a little bit perplexing, right? Because he doesn't actually kind of come right out and spell out, now the old promise was this and the, mm. the better promise is this. Mm. Um, we're left to kind of read implicitly what is going on. Now, he talks about um, a, a new covenant established on better promises in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. And then uh, goes on to cite the prophecy from Jeremiah where God um, talks about the fact that he's going to make a new covenant. And God explains there uh, a few things that he's going to do, that he will do, that he promises to do mm. uh, in this new covenant. And so the things that he talks about is to do with an internal transformation of his people. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. So this seems like this is a, a promise on which the new covenant is built. And he talks also about the forgiveness of sins. I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And I think that these are the, the better promises that are being referred to. Uh, these promises uh, are not a feature of the Old Covenant. Um, these are New Covenant promises. But I actually want to say that they actually, uh, they're not something different than, they're new, but they're not mm. different than the Old Covenant mm. promises. So the promise on which the Old Covenant was founded is God's promise to Abraham. You know, so I will uh, you know, make you uh, a great people and I'll give you a land and I will bless you. Now, those promises, uh, actually, the Israelites couldn't see them fulfilled in their experience. They couldn't benefit from them because of sin, mm. because of their inability 
to keep God's law. And so God says, actually, I will be faithful to my promises. I'll make sure my people can enjoy my promises because I'll do something about sin. I'll see that they can be my people and remain my people and enjoy my blessing by making ultimate provision for their sins to be forgiven by doing a work in them that enables them to keep my law Mm. and not to violate my covenant. Mm. So God sharpens up his promises for the sake of faithfulness to these original promises. That's what Mm. I think is going on here. Mm. Mm. So better, but in the same grain, in the same direction as the older promises. Yeah, I think there's a a development there Mm. and a sharpening up, Mm. um, but all for the sake of faithfulness to the original promise. Yeah, great. Well, look, hopefully that clears up some of the kind of meaning of Hebrews 7 and 8. I think the rest of our questions really come to then drawing out the implications of that meaning. Mm. So someone's asked very plainly uh, and simply, how does this comparison of old and new covenant actually help us under the new covenant? We never lived under the old. Why does this matter? What are the implications of this comparison? Yeah, I think I really want to say this is like just great Bible reading. It's so easy for us to kind of read ourselves into language of the covenant. And that's kind of appropriate at one level. But it is right to remember that uh, the Lord says he's going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So the first covenant is with Israelites. Mm. And the new covenant is first for the Jew. Mm. And only then for the Gentile. Mm. And so it's uh, very perceptive and important to remember that uh, you, Lachlan, and I have never been signatories to the Old Covenant. Mm. Um, I'm not Jewish. I don't think you are. No. 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 Uh, and so, you know, we've not, we've not been parties to the Old Covenant. Um, nevertheless, uh, the Bible tells us, Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 15, everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the what happened in the old is instructive for us, mm. even if we've never been signatories to parties to that covenant, yeah. uh, because it's the same God, right? And um, there are you know, people, in an important sense, are the same. Um, still, you know, the struggles with sin um, are, are familiar to us, um, and because it's not like the Jewish people were uniquely susceptible to sin or something like that. So in their grapplings with sin, mm. there's instruction for us mm. there. And I think also it helps to give us uh, the comparison of the old and the new, even if we've never been a part of the old. It helps us to understand what we have in the new. Mm. Um, what, a, what a glorious blessing it is to have the forgiveness of sins and to have God's Holy Spirit at work in us to enable us to be faithful. We just, it's tragic, isn't it? Just how, how God's people, sometimes they try a bit, but they just, they fall again and again. They mm. can't be faithful. Mm. The covenant mm. cannot stand. They break it again and again. God has done something for us. That means we never have to experience that kind of tragic and tenuous spiritual existence because of his work in us by his Holy Spirit. Yeah. Sounds a bit like, some of the value in just learning history generally. I, I'm not a person that's loved learning history. I wanted to get away from that as soon as I could in high school. I'm starting now that I'm in my mid-30s to appreciate the value of knowing some history. Uh, and part of that value is, you know, appreciating where we've come to and some of the developments from where humanity has been in the past. So even at that level, there's value in knowing the history of the Old Covenant 
uh, as you say, to appreciate Jesus all the more, mm. to appreciate what we have now under the new. Uh, another implication question. So the old covenants become obsolete. Why do we then apply the laws taught under the old covenant? Now, there's an assumption in the question that we do apply those laws. Uh, what do you want to speak to that one? Yeah, well, we've been um, stressing, uh, haven't we, that uh, the new covenant doesn't kind of mean the wholesale, um, you know, the, the crossing out, mm. the rendering obsolete, the superseding of the old. Uh, in you know, the old, that may not be what sets the terms of our relationship with God any longer, uh, but it does have uh, some kind of enduring value. Uh, so, what do we do with the laws then? And uh, again, this is a very significant question yeah. that you can see our New Testament authors grappling with and mm. working their way through. Mm. It's a big question to them uh, because the law is so much a part of Israel's existence, keeping the law such a distinctive yeah. of being God's people. And so the question pops up again and again in the New Testament. Do Christians need to keep the Old Testament mm. law, the Old Covenant law? Um, if no, well, was God wasting his breath with all that stuff? Is mm. that not actually mm. what the righteous life mm. looks like? And nobody's quite prepared to say that. But if yes, does that mean that there's no salvation for Gentiles? That Gentiles have to turn Jewish to become mm. saved? Mm. And that doesn't seem right either. Mm. And so uh, our New Testament authors are grappling away with this and, and we have to do our best to read between the lines of their thinking and kind of pull all of the pieces together. Uh, so I think, you know, in, in brief, the answer is we don't apply the laws of the Old Covenant as laws mm. to us. So as regulations, rules for us to follow with, you know, the kind the, the sanctions that come along with them. You know, our, our fields will be cursed if we don't yeah. um, keep this law. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work as a law um, with sanctions and punishments uh, in the same way anymore. Um, the uh, law of the Spirit, uh, Paul says, is what leads us and governs our lives now. And, and Paul's, of course, being a bit tricky in the ways using the law of the Spirit because what he means is that the teaching and, and guidance. Um, he doesn't mean literally the Spirit's got a rule book yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the laws of the Old Covenant do have a, kind of an abiding value because they're the word of god mm. god doesn't change god mm. tells the truth and so these words god wasn't wasting his breath and mm. they mean something they do tell us about the shape of the righteous life they do tell us about god and life in god's world uh, so they uh, give us instruction uh, and that's what the word uh, torah means instruction mm -hmm. and so uh, i think that the Bible, the, 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 the law of Moses, does function as instruction for Christians, teaching us about the shape of the righteous life in God's world, uh, not as rules for us to live by, but as wisdom for us to live by and to appropriate by the Spirit. And uh, also, you know, the laws um, in many ways point us forward to Jesus as well, because, you know, we see the, uh, the inability of God's people to keep the law which points mm. to the need uh, for a, a saviour who saves not um, through moral instruction, not through giving a perfect law that God's people just need to keep and then they'll be saved, but actually to be saved from the sin that renders them incapable of keeping that law. Yeah. 
it's such a big question really isn't it and we've scratched the surface there but uh the way that christians relate to law in the old testament uh many different traditions across the years have tried to formalize language around that and we could spend two hours or more just probing into the different alternatives there but hopefully that's been a helpful uh way forward in this question to think about those laws of the old covenant not law as law but law as wisdom from god for the righteous life we've got a few more implication questions uh someone's thinking about this promise of the new covenant that we would be transformed that our hearts would be transformed so we're actually empowered to live the righteous life what then did that kind of process of growth and maturity look like for faithful believers in the old testament Mm. Well, Lachlan, I'm pretty curious to hear what you think about this. I know this is something you've done a lot of thinking on yourself. Uh, I wouldn't say I've done a lot of thinking. I've tried to do some thinking and I haven't landed in uh, an answer that I've found fully satisfying yet. Uh, partly, I think we I found myself hindered by not being able to go back and interview someone from that old covenant to know what their experience was. Mm-hmm. Just reading off the pages of scripture, uh, you know, say... Abraham's journey of growth in faith. I think you do see him grow in trusting God, mm. even as he keeps stuffing up and failing. Mm. Uh, you know, he has moments of repentance and trust, and he, he does seem to grow. Uh, and a lot of that sounds similar, I think, to how we would describe our growth today. Uh, I think of David going through his moments of sin, confession, repentance. There's stuff that we still learn from in our experience. Uh, but the, the Bible does draw out that we have a very different relationship with God by His Spirit and that New Covenant Christians have God dwelling in us by His Spirit to work out that transformation. There's a new power for us, I think, that suggests we should be able to make greater strides in our growth by the way that God's doing that in us. Uh, but it's not a complete kind of one-stop instantaneous transformation that perhaps these promises might lead you to think it'll be. Mm. I think you could read these promises and go, okay, overnight, you're just going to be changed. No more effort needed. Yeah, That's not the Christian experience. Uh, and the language of Romans, the language of Galatians, is that there is this battle ongoing between the spirit that is in us and the flesh that is still waging war against our soul. Peter would talk about that language, the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. So we're not wholesale transformed in an instant uh, but it seems like there is something better newer for us than old covenant israelites Mm. so one of the things that's new about the new covenant is a new power at work in god's people Mm. transforming them to live Mm. god's way Mm. yeah do you want to add anything to that have i gone off the tracks there no i mean that sounds right to me in terms of thinking about uh, the the um, way that God's people learn to live God's way in the Old Covenant. Um, we talked about uh, Torah already, mm. didn't we? Instruction. Mm. Um, so one, one way you could translate Torah is law, and it's the name of the books, the first five books of the Bible, where there are lots of laws. But Torah more generally means instruction. And so God gave his people instruction mm. for how to live. Um, and we kind of see that this particularly operates in in families. Uh, so there's a strong sense of the importance of um, parents teaching children 
teaching them how to walk according to God's instruction. And so we, at the start of Proverbs, we kind of read, you know, listen, listen, my son, to, uh, you know, to, to my words. Mm. And this sense that, um, you know, one generation teaches the next mm. how to mm. live God's way. Um, the problem, as we've seen, is that God's people aren't able to educate themselves into a perfect keeping mm. of God's law. There's something missing. There's um, a power that's missing. And in fact, there's a power at work in them that uh, Paul would say they discover to be a law mm. within them that when they want to do good, in fact, it's just the opposite that they do. Mm. Again, these questions just keep touching on big issues under the surface that we could spend whole episodes on and whole stretch nights on. Uh, but we're going to have to keep moving to mm. get to our last couple of questions. Uh, on the same theme of this, and we, you know, we're talking about it already, how does God change our hearts? What's our role in that change and transformation? So we've been talking about this, haven't we? Yeah. So the way that God changes our hearts is the Spirit working through the Word, working through the Gospel of Jesus mm. Christ. Mm. So that's how he does it. Um, what is our role? Well, uh, this is, you know, again, touching on a, on a massive topic. Um, it is all God's work, and it's all our work mm. as well. So we can't kind of section it off like, 50-50 or 70-30 mm. mm. or 90-10, we have to say that if we learn to obey God, if we are transformed into the image of Christ, uh, this is a spiritual work. This is uh, something that that's the, it, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead that mm. does this, You know, a power beyond um, any power that we might have. So it's God's work. Uh, at the same time, uh, it's a genuine human activity. Mm. So my trusting, uh, my praying, uh, my loving are all things that I do, mm. not somebody else, me, mm. as I'm transformed mm. by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it's entirely me and entirely God in me. Yeah. I always think of the verse in Philippians in connection with this question, this idea where Paul writes to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's working in you, both the will and to work according to his good purpose. Mm. So you get both the command to work out, not kind of figure out your salvation, but outwork, mm -hmm. show in your life the reality of your salvation. You do that because God is working in you. So 100% both sides. Yes, working. and I love that it says working to will. So mm. my desire to do right is God's yeah. work in me. And my, yeah. my actions proceed from my desire. It's God who's birthed that desire in mm. me. Mm. One last question, Peter. Uh, we talked a bit on Sunday about rituals, perhaps as one of the ways that uh, we might think of what was happening under the old covenant and things that we might be um, in danger of falling back into and relating to God in a ritualistic way. Uh, at the moment, there's a season of Lent that some people might be following. Right, that traditional church season where people would um, give up certain things for a certain period of time. Yeah, and that can perhaps become a, a ritual that we think impacts our relationship with God, whether or not we follow that. Uh, when it comes to rituals, do we just make a personal decision about what is helpful for us or not? How should we 
think about rituals in our life as a Christian. Mm. Um, I think it's it's appropriate to point out that uh, we do have rituals. Mm. Uh, of course we do. And so you know, our church has its rituals. Uh, any group of people um, with a history will kind of fall into certain patterns and um, th- those will become important. So we have rituals for arriving at church. You get your name tag and mm. stick it on. You get your handout and in you come. Um, make sure you don't sit in the front seat. That's an important <laughs> front row. That's an important ritual. Um, so we have we have our rituals too. Um, now, is it totally a matter of individual preference? Uh, you know, everyone's got rituals, and you just decide which ones you're going to have. I think not quite. I think there are some rituals which are certainly uh, wrong and mm. dishonouring to God. Mm. So, um, you know, our forefathers uh, realised that the Roman Catholic practice of uh, dressing up like a priest and then acting as if uh, when you were sharing the Lord's Supper, acting as if you were making a sacrifice and sacrificing Jesus mm. again um, because you were the priest who could make Jesus' sacrifice come true for the people mm. uh, once more. This was uh, an awful denial of the gospel. Uh, like Hebrews says so loudly and so clearly, uh, Jesus makes one offering of himself once and for all, once and for all time. And a ritual that makes out like people need to kind of reenact mm. Jesus' sacrifice mm. totally cuts against the, the gospel, undercuts the gospel, undercuts uh, the, the, the once-for-allness of what Jesus has done. So that ritual um, is unhelpful and, in fact, sinful because of the way that it undermines the gospel. Mm. And so it's not simply a matter of personal preference. However, of course, there are lots of uh, rituals which don't uh, clearly undermine the gospel in that kind of way. They may be uh, more or less helpful. They may be potentially unhelpful. They may be potentially helpful. Um, And I think there is a fair amount of personal preference. uh, Wisdom, we would say. Uh, Wisdom in discerning. uh, Is there something that directs my eyes to Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice uh, and helps me to uh, dwell on him in my heart? Or is it something that actually takes my eyes away from Jesus and um, perhaps even onto myself and the kinds of activity mm. that I'm doing? Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I think we want to be wary of any kind of ritual that replaces Jesus or any ritual that we think uh, in a salvation way impacts our relationship with God. And, and there will be some of those around that we can be tempted to fall into. Um but yeah, good to remember that, you know, on, on the level that ritual might just mean habit, regular practice, there are some regular practices and habits that will direct our eyes to Jesus and help us to consider him, fix our eyes on him. Uh, and that's a good thing. Mm. Yeah. Peter, before we started recording today, you said that lots of meaty questions in this episode, and I think you're right. You've been proven right as we've spoken. We've I've felt along the way, just repeatedly, we're scratching the surface, and I'd love to have chatted more on lots of those things, but such is the nature of time. Uh, and I hope that's been helpful for you as you listen to keep thinking about what the Bible's teaching and to keep thinking about the implications of that for us. I love that we're a church where questions are welcome. Uh, let's keep thinking deeply about the Bible. Uh, Peter, this coming Sunday, we continue on in the book of Hebrews. What's coming up next? 
Well, next up is Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, again, as you said, Lachlan, the uh, argument is uh, in some ways quite sort of technical here and presupposes a lot of Old Testament mm. knowledge. But in lots of ways, we're really getting right down to the heart of things now because we talk about the way that in the Old Covenant, there are all kinds of sacrifices, all kinds of rituals for cleansing. But what Jesus does is the thing that all of those were pointing to, the once for all definitive sacrifice that cleanses people for sin once and for all. Great, looking forward to it. Uh, thanks for your time, Peter. Listeners, thanks for your time. Uh, we are enjoying this journey through Hebrews together and we'll see you next week. Bye now.